Welcome to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss beneficial practices and bounteous resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. Really glad to have been able to call up Dr. William Varner. How are you doing, sir? Doing well. I'm looking forward to this. Yes, thank you so much for taking the time. I know there is a host of nerdy language majors out there who are very excited uh, to hear this podcast. Dr. William Varner, for those who are not in the Nerdy Language Majors Facebook group, and if you aren't, you should go check it out, is the professor of biblical studies and Greek at the Masters University in Santa Clarita, California, incredibly passionate about encouraging people to study New Testament, Koine Greek, and really get into the original language of Scripture. Let's just start off with this. Dr. Varner, why do you think this is so important? Well, I tell you, uh, I was privileged in my undergraduate uh, days to have a Greek minor. Um, I remember telling my my advisor my freshman year, uh, I said, you know, I'm really smart. <laughs> I'm 19 years old. I know everything in life. <laughs> mm, that's most I do. said, I'm going to take a Bible major without Greek, uh, because that way uh, I don't have to spend a lot of time in Greek. I can just get a lot more English Bible. And my wise advisor looked at me and said, well, he says, there's two paths in life, the hard way and the easy way. You're asking to do the easy way. The hard way has more benefits at the end. He said, take Greek. I said, thank you, sir. <laughs> I took Greek, fell in love with it, ended up having a minor. I took 28 units, 28 credits of Greek undergrad, and I'm profoundly thankful for that wise advisor, much wiser than this 19-year-old kid <laughs> uh, uh, who was trying to avoid Greek for an easier way. But all my uh, the benefits of those 28 hours and my graduate work in Greek have just been inestimable, and I'm so thankful for that wisdom that he gave me uh, and the grounding that I got uh, in, in those undergraduate courses. Uh, that's amazing. I mean, that's a lot of hours in an undergraduate program in Greek. I mean, I think that most seminaries don't offer even that many hours, and I'm assuming throughout your doctoral studies you've continued that pattern. Tell us a little bit about what that was like. Yes, um, in, in my seminary uh, uh, courses, and again, they thought I, I was the Greek's Greek because I came with so much Greek in seminary, I continued to benefit from my seminary professors, and I did a THM in New Testament and uh, did further work um, uh, on uh, the passages in First Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 about women's ministry. So I used my Greek there, and then I uh, did a master's degree in Hellenistic Jewish studies at Dropsy University, and uh, that was mainly in Septuagint Greek and also Josephus and some other early church fathers like Justin Martyr. So uh, I was able to extend my knowledge of Greek outside the New Testament to, as I said, uh, Septuagint and uh, um, early uh, writers, Jewish writers, and other early Christian writers like Josephus and the Church Fathers. Well, I'm going to apologize to my audience right now. I'm going to try to keep up if I can and make this uh, an intelligent and helpful conversation uh, because, man, that's that's just a lot of study, a lot of information, a lot of deep work in the the Greek that I, I'm not as familiar with, and even some of them who have done even more Greek than me, are going to be uh, a little out of the loop on, but I'm, I'm excited to see what comes up. We're partly, uh, during this 
episode going to be talking about a forthcoming commentary on the Greek text of James from Fontis Press, Exegetical Tools' own publisher. What has that process been like? I know, I know, we're nearing the end of that process. It's written, it's been formatted, it's it's, it's moving into printing soon, going to be released. What was that process like? Why pick up this commentary on James instead of anyone else's? Well, uh, years ago I preached through the book of James when I was a pastor, so that was my introduction to it uh, then. And then when I became a professor, uh, I was invited by Stan Porter to contribute a commentary on James uh, from a discourse analysis perspective, paying attention to the Greek, and that was published. It's called James, A New Perspective, um, uh, benefiting from a discourse analysis study of the book. And uh, I continued uh, to uh, work on uh, James, and uh, the result of this is this, uh, I think, major work on James, paying attention to the Greek text and trying to draw out from it um, uh, the meaning. I've always felt uh, that we need to be practical. Um, I do think that even though this uh, commentary is based on the Greek text, I I hope it's written in understandable language, and we're trying to draw meaning out of the text. So um, uh, I hope it's written in understandable language. It's not written... Uh, for high-level scholars, but it is written for someone who has at least one year of Greek. So I've tried to target it not too high, but uh, it does rigorously engage the Greek text. And uh, I'm just thrilled that this revised commentary uh, greatly improved, I think, with uh, some of the recent uh, resources that have been uh, published, uh, the Brill Dictionary of Ancient Greek, has come out since I finished uh, the manuscript initially, and I've tried to work in um, uh, aspects of uh, meaning from these uh, recent studies uh, that, that have been published in the last few years. So you mentioned discourse analysis and how integral that is to your exegesis of the book of James. Tell us a little bit more about that. We have a wide-ranging audience from serious uh, exegetical uh, students who are lay people to seminarians and uh, doctoral students and professors, academically minded pastors. Let's talk a little bit about discourse analysis and especially how it affects our understanding of James. Good. Uh, a typical exegetical analysis goes from the bottom up, starting with words and, and phrases and clauses. Um, discourse analysis is, is, is an analysis from the top down. But neither one of those analyses should be neglected. Uh, you can't do a discourse analysis from the top down, looking at a big overall picture of the discourse as a whole, unless you do the nitty-gritty work from the bottom up. So any thorough analysis of a text must go from the bottom up and also from the top down. And I think it begins from the bottom up. What does this word mean? What does it mean in this phrase? What does it mean in this clause? What does it mean in the paragraph? And then finally, what does it mean in the book as a whole? And that's when you arrive at an overall view of, the, of an analysis of the discourse, the whole book. So you go from the bottom up first, and then you start to uh, discern patterns that you have noticed in the bottom-up analysis. And those patterns emerge, and you start to see a picture of the discourse 
as a whole. And I do think that this last aspect of discourse analysis has been a neglected aspect of analysis. Sometimes we just do it from the words up, but we neglect to put it all together. And that's what I've tried to do with the book of James. Go from the words up and then look at the discourse as a whole, the entire book, and see patterns that emerge from the uh, bottoms-up uh, analysis that can cause us to look at the analysis of the discourse, that's discourse analysis, as a whole. Now, can you uh, think off the top of your head of a, of a uh, passage in James where this really comes into play that you maybe bring out in this new commentary? Yes. Uh, uh, I take the uh, idea that when he says brothers, or he addresses them with a rhetorical question, that introduces a new uh, paragraph. And uh, what often happens when he says brothers is that he will use um, a, a command, uh, what is called an imperative. Our readers know what that is. Uh, and, and so I look at the, the uh, imperative that begins, or the question, that begins each section and uh, look at what is wisdom. In James three thirteen through 17, I believe he talks about wisdom from above and wisdom from below, and so I take that as the macro picture for the book as a whole. When he gives this command in each of the paragraphs, he's telling us what God's wisdom is from above and he contrasts it with wisdom from below. So James 1, 2 to 5, right out of the gate, almost everybody knows this, brethren, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. So what is going to be our attitude towards trials? Are we going to have God's wisdom from above, or are we going to follow wisdom from below? If we follow wisdom from below, uh, above, he says, consider it all joy, when you encounter these trials, for the testing of your faith uh, produces uh, endurance and endurance hope and so forth. So um, what is going on there is he's telling us this is wisdom from above, and this imperative uh, is, sets the pace for that paragraph. How do we respond to trials? Do we curse God? Do we just grin and bear it? Do we just keep a stiff upper lip, or do we follow wisdom from above, which is consider it joy, because uh, it's a joyful thing to grow, and trials will help us to grow. That is what I do in each paragraph. Uh, what is James' wisdom from above, and how does he contrast it with uh, wisdom from below? I appreciate that I can even hear just your pastoral heart coming through someone who has been this involved in um, biblical studies and in languages and still caring that we get the point of this inspired passage of Scripture. Along that same vein, I want to ask you this. For for a listener who is trying to wrestle with the, the implications of uh, James 2, talking about faith and works in their own life and their own sanctification uh, for the pastor who's kind of maybe avoided uh, James because it just feels a little different than Paul feels, you know, a Martin Luther strawy epistle kind of idea here. H how would you encourage them? Are James and Paul just at odds with one another when it comes to faith and works? Of course, that's the question that often comes up, and it's one of the dominating theological questions in James. 
I really think that James and um, uh, Paul are, are really at one with another. But here's the difference. Each of them is facing a different problem. And when we see that, we see that they're not conflicting with each other, but they're actually, I'll use this analogy, instead of drawing swords and fighting one another, they're actually standing back to back, and each has his sword drawn, but they are encountering a different opponent. And when we understand that, I think we can see that they're not contradictory. They're back to back. Paul is 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 encountering a uh, a, a a Judaistic uh, legalistic uh, emphasis on works being uh, contributing to salvation. And he's got his sword drawn, and he says, no, uh, works do not contribute to our salvation. Uh, uh, it's faith uh, uh, in, in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So he's combating in Romans and Galatians that uh, uh, opponent. Uh, uh, James is actually encountering a different uh, opponent, and it's the opponent who says uh, faith with, uh, without works. We don't need deeds. We just have faith. I believe in God. I believe in Christ. That is all I need. And James pulls out his sword and said that type of of faith, faith that is not accompanied by deeds, is dead. It's 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 lifeless. So they're really um, drawing their swords and attacking or responding to different uh, enemies. Uh, and, and when we see that, they actually complement one another. They are um, uh, uh, not opposed one to another. It's interesting that Paul appeals to Genesis 15:6, and so does James. Uh, Abraham believed God, and it counted to him for righteousness. But Paul is doing that in regard to when was Abraham circumcised. He was circumcised two chapters later in chapter 17. So Paul's point is that uh, Abraham was had faith before he was circumcised. So that's he's answering the circumcised uh, the circumcision party. Uh, look, J, uh, Abraham had faith before he was circumcised. When James uses that same text, he says, "Listen, that text uh, Abraham believed God, and it was kind to him for righteousness." was fulfilled and found its uh, fulfillment later in Genesis uh, where he offers his son Isaac. So they actually use the same text but use it to prove something a little bit different. Uh, Paul says he was justified before he was circumcised. Uh, James says his justification found fulfillment in his work or his deed when he was willing to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. So I think when we approach it that way, we see, hey, they're not enemies. Uh, they're allies. They're just encountering different enemies that they have to uh, respond to in a little bit different way. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that's a helpful summary, and I really hope that our listeners can take that away if that's something that they've not really studied or, or, or really been able to settle in their mind. Uh, and this is what good scholarship does for us. It doesn't uh, set various biblical authors at odds. It it honors their context. It honors their own purpose in writing and their own genre of writing and their own uh, historical um, events. And yet, 
um, synthesizes. And so thank you for that. I appreciate that. I'm sure that will go a long way. Now, we've got several questions from, I mentioned the, the nerdy language majors. Is it, for those who don't know, it's this, uh, this Facebook group for those who are really interested in the original languages of Scripture, uh, various text critical issues, uh, of which Dr. Varner is one of the admin uh personnel it's it's a fun time and it's passionate and so i asked for uh some questions and later i want to bring up just a rapid fire question round if that's okay with you dr varner just sure, uh, that's fine. you know a, a, a few words or even a yes or no on some of these um but one of the things i really wanted to to get to since i know this is something you're passionate about have already mentioned uh for those who are who, who've done some greek maybe they did some greek in their undergrad they did some greek in seminary they're out in the field, they're pastoring right now, and they're they they're saying, "I don't even know if I can buy a commentary on the Greek text. I don't even know if I can use these kinds of resources because I'm just so rusty." Um, barring going back to school, what would you encourage them to do to regain and sharpen those skills? Good. Well, if you asked me that a year ago, uh, I would have answered it differently than I, I am answering it now. But okay. thankfully, uh, a few months ago. My good friend, Rob Plummer, uh, along with uh, Professor Merkel, published uh, an excellent book called Greek for Life. So I would recommend that this um, person that you're describing, who's had some Greek but have been at distance from it for a while, pick up a copy of this Greek for Life, Strategies for Not Only Maintaining Your uh, Greek, but also strategies if uh, you're uh, starting over <laughs> with Greek. So I would highly recommend the recommendations there. Also, um, uh, my friend Rob Plummer and his daily dose of Greek, that would be a good way to uh, po- you know, polish up or take the rust off uh, some of your Greek. And, of course, uh, uh, exegetical tools, uh, this wonderful website, has so many resources there to get you going again and, and at various levels. Don't let uh, yourself get discouraged. Uh, I know some brothers and sisters, uh, they may be a little bit older. They say, oh, I'm, I'm losing my Greek. It's hard to get it back. There are ways in which you can start slowly and, and get this back. Uh, don't let a Greek commentary intimidate you. Uh, oftentimes you can work your way through it, uh, even though uh, uh, the text is in Greek. The explanations usually are in understandable English. But these are some resources that are out there, online and written. So uh, let me encourage <laughs> a discouraged uh, pastor or a student who's uh, had a few years since they took classes. Uh, there is hope. And if you uh, would like to do uh, an MA in biblical studies, I'd be happy to help you with some online courses that we offer through the Master's University uh, as you uh, engage an MA in biblical studies. We have an intermediate Greek course, we have an exegesis of James course, and we have an advanced Greek grammar course. And you can get credit for those as part of your uh, MA in biblical studies. So there are tools available. Don't be discouraged. 
That's a good word to hear, you know, from someone who's uh, done it, been doing it uh, extensively for years, uh, that there is hope for the rest of us. I'm definitely on the the lower end of the spectrum uh, relative to a lot of our audience. I'm maybe right there in the middle of the spectrum. And I actually got a chance to to look through some of this forthcoming commentary on the Greek text of James, and it was was interesting and helpful but not beyond reach. And so I just want to plug that out there as as someone who you know maybe is thinking well that's easy for you to say dr varner well it's it's still easy for me to say and so that maybe goes a little bit uh further with some of them yeah rob Plummer, a friend of exegetical tools uh ever since uh that that resource came out uh with merkel i've been wanting to kind of tip off our audience to that because it just seems exactly like uh what we're trying to accomplish here really really helpful good stuff i've used um Daily Dose of Greek and Daily Dose of Hebrew with Mark Vitato as well, just as supplemental resources. Really, really great stuff. I, I want to throw a, a somewhat shameful plug out there. We actually have a Greek reading section of, of our products on exegetical tools in the Greek tab, and I, I only mention this because you can walk through the Greek text of James with Dr. Varner, uh, which is a really really exciting and affordable thing that we offer, as well as for those who are thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more robust in my understanding, a really in-depth um, upper-level analysis of Acts chapter 1. And so I'd encourage our listeners who want to stay sharp, go check that out and see if it's something that might be useful to you. Go look at Rob Plummer's stuff. Uh, and man, consider that MA. I mean, that could be that could be the next step for someone listening to this podcast. Well, that that's all been really, really great. I really appreciate it all, Dr. Varna. Are you ready for a rapid-fire question round? Well, I hope I can give rapid answers. <laughs> that's right. I know this was a zero prep for you, um, and so maybe a lot of fun for us. We'll, we'll just see. So first question is, is about lexicons. It's from Chuck Evans. Launida, BDAG, I'm going to throw in Brildag. Uh, what do we think of them? Where should we start? How do we compare? I think any serious New Testament student needs to get uh, BDAG. That's the third edition of uh, a lexicon of the Greek New Testament and early Christian literature, edited by Frederick Donker. Uh, I really think you should get that. I have a three-part video on using BDAG uh, that will help you through the beginning stages of it. Uh, and... Um, uh, Wow, uh, you've got to start with that. Laonidas, uh, uh, Greek New Testament, uh, according to the semantic no- uh, domains, is helpful, but you really got to start with BDAG. Now, if you want to expand beyond that, the Brill Dictionary of Ancient Greek, along with the Liddell Scott and Jones lexicon, takes you back into classical Greek and helps with Septuagint, uh, as well as uh, bringing it up to New Testament. But really, I think a sine qua non, something that's absolutely essential, is uh, the BDAG. Now, uh, students who say, well, you know, it's really a very expensive. Is there an alternative? Yes, there is. Frederick Donker came out with a concise Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. It's more affordable doesn't go into as much detail about it, the classical or the Septuagint use of the word, but it's an affordable, uh, a handy, uh, it, it's not really a condensation of VDAG, it's a new lexicon, but if you want to go with that, the concise uh, lexicon, uh, Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament done by Frederick Donker, that would be a good choice. 
Thank you. I hope that's really helpful. Um, Cliff Cavittle, who is actually co-founder of Fontis Press, uh, through whom this James commentary is being published, asks, and you know, if you want to give a yes or no with no explanation, feel free, or you can go in a little more depth. Do you see a Pauline influence in the Didache? <laughs> the Didache is the earliest church manual. It probably dates to the late first century. And uh, Cliff and I have a fun uh, relationship there. My answer is no. I do not see any Pauline emphasis in the Didache, but I see a lot of James's influence with his Jewish Christianity. Uh, Didache is a very Jewish Christian document, and uh, not that it's opposed to Paul. I just do not see Pauline influence in it, and I hope Cliff is listening to this. <laughs> I hope so too. You know, I half guessed. Given that you guys already knew one another, there might be something going on there. But yes, uh, there I'm glad to, <laughs> glad to have that confirmed. And I'm not going to be able to get to every single one of these questions, but I want to sum up uh, some of them. And really, there are there are two I think categories here remaining. Firstly, um, current trends in scholarship or emphases uh, that either you you are glad are being uh, worked on or that you think someone ought to investigate. Good, yes. I think one is verbal aspect. A lot of good work has been done recently in verbal aspect. As a matter of fact, soon after we hang up with each other, brother, I'm going to my advanced Greek grammar class, and the subject today is verbal aspect. There you go. It builds on to tense. The old view is that tense was predominant. Now the view is how does an author view the action he is describing? Does he view it as a simple event? Does he view it as a process, or does he view it as a state? And some of the recent grammars uh, have been uh, very helpful in discussing verbal aspect, and I think this really brings particularly a narrative text to life. When you see, does the author see it as an event, or does he see it as a process? And we are brought closer to the event when he uses a present or an imperfect tense, uh, because it's a process. I think that is one of the most helpful recent advances in the study of New Testament Greek, verbal aspect theory. Any areas you think that someone ought to investigate a little further? Yes. Well, the, uh, the uh, whole issue is, does tense really, uh, does, uh, a, a tense really convey time? And uh, I've gone back and forth with that. Uh, I think in the indicative, we probably should say that the heiress does convey t- past time. But like A.T. Robertson said, time is in the background. More important than time in a tense is the aspect, how the author views the action as a whole or in a process or in a state. That is where the work still needs to be done. And I think I still... Uh, side with those who say you can't say that Aris doesn't convey pastime in the indicative. I think it does, but it's not the primary thing that the author is conveying. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in a, an additional one. I mentioned two, and we've got one. I'm going to throw in a middle one here. For those who are currently in seminary doctoral studies, and they're thinking, you know, I, I didn't take near as many hours uh, in Greek as Dr. Varner has, uh, what would you recommend to them in order to get the most out of this time to be the most useful for their exegesis throughout their career? Translate, 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 
and try to pick up speed reading. Now, we all have a challenge of uh, vocabulary. So if you want to have a vocabulary or a reader's Greek testament uh, with, with definitions nearby, I'm not going to condemn you for that. Try to pick up speed and fluency in reading. Here's the challenge. We want to get dig into the text and get into the details of the text. Absolutely. But also, that's not normally the way we read. We, we read through a paragraph. Uh, we, we, we don't go word by word. So, so both are important, but try to pick up some fluency in reading uh, rather than detailed exegeting. That can come later, but uh, read your Greek New Testament for fluency and for enjoyment. Don't just read it for digging down into each word. Now, you may, some may be surprised to hear a Greek uh, professor say that, but I really think uh, keeping up your reading, uh, you know, at least a chapter a day, if not more, will help you to appreciate the Greek New Testament more and keep you fluent. Thank you for that. I think that's uh, an encouragement that I, I've not heard as often that I think I can see the wisdom in it and go a long way. And even if I couldn't, I would uh, just trust your judgment on it. Uh, here's, a, here's a third question, and this is another thing that kind of came out uh, when I asked for, for, for people's input. What are you currently working on, and, and what should we be expecting down the line after this James commentary? Good. I'm working on uh, Paul's statement in Galatians 6.11. See with what large letters mm. I have written to you with my own hand. Four other epistles, Paul uh, appends the subscription by saying he has written it with his own hand. What did he mean there? Well, what I've been doing is looking at ancient Greek letters on papyrus. Fortunately, almost all of them are online. And I've now gone through about 300, 350 letters going from the first century B.C. to about 200 A.D. And these are not all Christian letters, but, but what did a letter look like? And it, it appears to me that apart from just the simple, hello, goodbye, I love you, and I'll see you soon letter, if the letter had any official characteristic at all, it, uh, he used a secretary, and then he took up his pen at the end, not only signing his name, but giving greetings, always in a rougher, cruder hand, and oftentimes in a larger hand. So that's what I'm working on. And uh, then I'm working on a mid-level commentary on Philippians uh, for the Accordance uh, uh, Bible software. And then long-range, I'm working on a church father named Second Clement, and how we need to understand the sermon that Second Clement gives in the second century. So all of those are still related to my Greek studies, uh, but one of them is, uh, <laughs> what did Paul mean when he said, uh, you look at my large letters? And I'm not going to tell you what I think he means, but <laughs> I haven't finished <laughs> my research wait. yet. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and, and also Philippians, uh, and also uh, the... Um, work of Second Clement, early Christian literature. That's where a book like um, uh, BDAG will be helpful to you, because he not only gives you the meanings of words in the New Testament, but also words in the Apostolic Fathers. Dr. Varner, thank you so much. I mean, what, what a joy this conversation's been, and what a gift you are to uh, both church and academy. Thank you for, for the work you're doing. We need, the, we need more convicted, confessional evangelicals doing high-level 
scholarly work. And so I'm grateful for you uh, leading the way in some of those areas. I did want to ask before we leave, this has been my custom with most of our guests, is there a particular passage of scripture that you have been ruminating on at a devotional level that you'd like to share with our audience? Yes, uh, Philippians. Uh, uh, Philippians chapter 4, and uh, how he says, uh, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, and then a couple of verse later, he says, and the God of peace will be with you. That inclusio there, starting off with the peace of God that mounts his guard on your hearts and ending with the God of peace is what I think has ministered to me uh, personally uh, as I've studied Philippians 4. Amen. That's a good word. Dr. Varner, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, brother, and all blessings on exegetical tools and uh, I just want to encourage people to not give up, pick up that Greek New Testament. You can do it, okay? Amen. Thank you. Mm-hmm.